This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, July 23, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Freedom of speech and, more broadly, academic freedom on college campuses is in trouble. What brought universities to this point? Can a restructuring of the university system preserve speech and academic freedom? At the Voice and Exit Conference in Austin, I spoke with Brett Weinstein, formerly of Evergreen State College, and Thaddeus Russell, host of the Unregistered Podcast. We talked about the future of academic freedom and free speech on campus. I'm going to start with uh, Thaddeus Russell. He received his PhD from Columbia University. He is the host of the popular and engaging unregistered podcast. I will commend to you a recent one with uh, Nadine Strassen uh, that you recorded. I enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, Nadine Strassen, of course, is the former head of the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, he's the author of Out of the Jungle, Jimmy Hoffa, and the remaking of the American working class, and also of the book A Renegade History of the United States. Uh, the Out of the Jungle book was based uh, on your dissertation. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're also joined by Brett Weinstein, who until very recently was a professor of evolutionary biology at Evergreen State. Uh, and Brett, just before we started here today, I said, can you give me the short version of your story? You both have, uh, I think, very compelling stories to tell, but is there a a reasonably short version that you can give us? Uh, There is a reasonably short version, but I will say, for people who really want to know what happened at Evergreen, my wife, Heather Hying, who was also a professor at Evergreen and has uh, resigned similarly, She and I wrote a version for the Washington Examiner that is the most complete and most accurate version out there. So if you want the deep story, that's the place to go. The short version is the new president of Evergreen College partnered with a group of faculty and staff that set in motion some uh, ironically named equity proposals that really weren't about equity at all. And I raised the question about whether these things were going to put the college in financial jeopardy and whether they were going to create uh, a very inequitable situation on a campus that was quite equitable as it stood. And this turned me into public enemy number one. Some faculty arranged to have some students that I had never met protest my class. Those students uh, called for my firing or my resignation. They then put up videos of them challenging me when people on the internet watched them challenging me and me uh, trying to reason with them. People thought something was odd. They then looked at the email about the day of absence in which uh, white people had been asked not to come to campus. I had protested this and said why in an email. People looked at my email, which the protesters claimed revealed my racism. People couldn't find any racism in the letter, and that resulted in uh, a series of events that ultimately caused us to set in motion a lawsuit against the college. The college refused to sit down with us until the end of the summer, at which point we were effectively forced to resign uh, as a condition of settlement with the college. All right, so uh, this day, um, when white people were asked to not, not be on campus, this included professors... Professors, staff, students. And, and your, your thought was, well, I'm just going to go teach my class. Well, I, so this is where the story I mean, you begins pro, You protested longer. before. You, you, were, you made it known that you didn't like this, this idea, but 
So there was a long-standing tradition that stretches back to the 70s in which people of color absented themselves from campus every year. And the committee that organized it decided to ask white people not to come to campus. And on the one hand, that sounds very symmetrical. But then when you think about it, there's a big difference between not showing up to campus in protest, which I would support, and telling other people not to show up to campus because of the color of their skin, which I would never support. So um, that is. Uh, that is the distinction which was lost on some people, but it strikes me as very important. You can't tell me don't show up because you're white uh, and not have me show up. So I did tell them I would show up and I showed up and the protest did not occur then, it happened later, but nonetheless that was the, the focus the protesters chose. Uh, Thaddeus Russell, to you, you've, you raise, you talk about history, uh, that's your main bag, but uh, when you were a professor and you're presenting history in a, in a new way, uh, in a way that is uh, not particularly reverent. So what is your experience in, in trying to work within academia and try to, uh, you know, I guess broaden the range of discussion about history? Dismal. I spent years, as I mentioned yesterday, trying to sort of change the minds of people from within academia to embrace intellectual diversity, and a competition between ideas, and as I said yesterday, I was com a complete failure at that. It's not my fault entirely, I don't think, but the culture is really resistant to that. But I, my book, Renegade History of the United States, if you don't know about it, it is the, one of the major arguments in it is that people who are on the margins, who don't obey social norms historically, have pioneered spaces that we now take for granted as spaces of freedom. And so that includes people like prostitutes in the 19th century. It includes slaves and slave culture, which of course violated all the norms of puritanical America and which we now all celebrate as America's great contribution to culture, things like jazz and rock and roll, et cetera. Along with that, I made an argument that people we normally consider to be great freedom fighters like Martin Luther King and the feminists, the early suffragists, were actually opponents of these kinds of freedoms and were in many ways enemies of the cultures that they actually claimed to champion. So for instance, the reason I was fired essentially from Barnard College was that I criticized Martin Luther King for criticizing black culture as being too loose and promiscuous and too accepting of violations of social, uh, social norms. And uh, they told me that that was unacceptable and dangerous and I had no place in the academy saying the, those kinds of things. So I left essentially the academy and found my own way of doing this, which was to establish my own university, Renegade University. So, uh, Brett, your fight at Evergreen State had a great deal to do with just the, the, I guess, the institutional inertia of the school. And that is yours was about sp the specifically the kinds of things that you wanted to present. So it was more within the... Uh, within the department that you were having an issue. Is that right? Well, I don't, well, I don't think Brett's problem was inertia. <laughs> no? <laughs> On the, uh, institutional inertia, they were pretty aggressive, right? But for me, it was, for me, it was inertia. Yeah, I mean, it's a, what people don't understand, I think, about universities generally, higher education and the system is that it's fundamentally conservative. What I didn't mention yesterday is the modern university as we know it in the United States, in North America, and in Europe is based on medieval monasteries literally, places where priests were trained, that were controlled by the church. So there was no intellectual diversity, of course, and it was all, it was a monopoly controlled top down by the church and then the state. Well, that's what we have now. We have an accreditation system that's controlled by the Department of Education. All the accreditation agencies have to be accredited by the Department of Education, and you have to follow certain guidelines, like a certain number of books, 
you have to have certain dormitories, certain number of PhDs teaching on your faculty to get accreditation to give college credit. So when I founded Renegade University, people said, oh, can you give college credit? And I said, sure, let me look it up. And I found it basically was impossible. The barrier to entry in that market is impossible. That's why all the prestigious colleges and universities you know about, you may have noticed, are like 150 or 200 years old, right? It's a monopoly that's been protected by the state for that long. So that's the real inertia to me that's in, the, that's in this institution, this, in, in this business. That's the problem. We have to abolish that monopoly or, better yet, what I'm saying is just make our own. Make our own colleges because we can do it now. It's happening. Even if I don't say this, it's just happening. Brett? So uh, I actually quite agree with you that the accreditation system is, in some sense, the root of all evil here because it enforces a kind of similarity between colleges and nobody detects the, the source. So I'm waiting for the moment at which it becomes hip to go to an unaccredited place, you know, much as I'm waiting for the moment at... Uh, uh, at which uncertified organic becomes a thing, you know, where you get the advantages of organic food without paying the extra price. That's going to be a cool moment. Unaccredited universities could be very cool. Now, they will vary a lot in quality. Some may be terrible. But within the category, you'll get both extremes. If we're trying to, uh, and I agree, uh, there are significant problems, and I, I, don't, I don't know very much about the process of accreditation, but if, if you're right that all these well-regarded universities are hundreds of years old, that would seem to be a problem, that there isn't a new entry into that marketplace. Young people who go to college are thinking, well, I'm going to get this degree, and that will confer to the world my value as a person. And, and you know, we have what, 40% of the people in jobs, uh, people with college degrees are doing jobs that do not require a college degree. And the college degree itself has become a blunt sorting mechanism for uh, would-be employers uh, to, uh, I guess, uh, avoid having to go through actually engaging with people and uh, determining whether or not they're, they're good employees. That all seems pretty reasonable uh, in a way. But breaking that norm down I mean, that's a, it's a heavy lift. So where do we start? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a good teacher. I, I've taken it seriously my whole life. I've wanted to be a teacher since the first time I was in a college classroom. I'm pretty sure Brett's a good teacher from hearing him talk about it. Um, I, I, you probably agree with me that a lot of the kids in college are never going to think about either American history or biology in any serious way afterward, no matter how good we are as teachers in the classroom. It's just a fact that because of this social norm, right, you're shamed if you don't go to college. And so a lot of kids just go to college because you're supposed to do it, but when they get there, they start reading Plato or Shakespeare or even Toni Morrison, and they realize this is not for them. It's just not interesting, and that's fine. I don't need them to be interested. I don't need anybody else to be interested in what we do. But they're forced through this sort of social shaming to go to this place, this institution that's not for them. A lot of them should be doing something else. Like my son, he's 17 years old, he's about to do this. And I've been telling him, because he clearly doesn't have, he doesn't have an intellectual career in mind, it's just not going to happen for him, and that's fine. He should be working. He should be out of school and doing his own thing, or just exploring the world in his own ways. But there's this funnel that everyone's expected to go into, right? It's not about law. There's no law forcing us to go to college. But there's a very powerful norm that almost forces everybody, sort of, certainly of the middle class and above, to go there when most shouldn't be there. 
uh, it's actually, it's become a racket. Effectively, you have to go, which means that somehow you have to take on that debt or figure out how you're going to pay for it up front. And it's really, you know, it's putting the cart before the horse. I, I will say, uh, I'll differ with you a little bit. The thing that I kept seeing with evolutionary biology as my teaching topic was that people came through the door not quite sure why they wanted to study it, you know, but having studied it, there's this oh my God moment when you realize that everything you care about, and literally, if you were to go through a list of all of the things that you actually care about, and you were then to tick check off all of those that evolutionary biology would give you some deep insight into what you're doing wrong with that, um, it would be almost all of them, and for some of you, it would be all of them. So the discovery that everything you care about is connected to evolutionary biology, and that when you understand evolutionary biology, it's not like another big complex thing you have to understand. It's the thing that simplifies everything so that it's intuitive and nuanced and so that you can navigate your life. When you realize that, it's very powerful. So what I did in the classroom for 14 years had to do with bringing people in who didn't quite know why they were there, and then alerting them to this key, and that turned out to be very addictive. So there was uh, a culture that would follow my wife and me. She also teaches evolutionary biology. We would trade students back and forth. Word of mouth would cause other people to join because they wanted in. And so in, in some sense, I think the, the thing that I would like to see happen more frequently is for people to discover that, um, that there is a real value. You may have gone to college because you had no choice, because in order to get a job you needed that degree, but having arrived there, you should have that aha moment at which you discover what it is that you needed to know, um, even if it wasn't your plan. So if we, if we care about free speech, what has the modern university given us in terms of, you know, if you describe accreditation as this process that uh, informs a, or uh, enforces a certain rigidity in how universities undertake uh, or engage with ideas, new ideas, or even revised old ideas. Uh, what does that give us in terms of the, you know, the climate, the, the intellectual climate uh, of ideas in the United States? If, if the people that we're supposed to take most seriously when they talk are um, not being exposed to or not willing to engage with a, a broader range of ideas, what's that leave us with? Yeah, so let me fill out the, what this racket is made up of, because it is a racket. I didn't give you all of it. So there's this accreditation system, which I, I think I laid out, right? <clears throat> um, but on top of that, you have this, this idea that, that faculty, faculty governance, so most colleges and universities have fa what's called faculty governance. The administrators stay out of most hiring and firing and promotion decisions and tenure decisions until the very end. Essentially, the faculty get to run the place in terms of who's teaching there. They get to decide who's teaching there and what is taught. And those people who make those decisions have, a li have lifetime appointments, okay? So you can imagine the kinds of people they would hire, people who tend to agree with them. Okay, so tenure, theoretically, right, was, a, was to protect intellectual diversity or foster it. Well, guess what? It's just the opposite. I think that is at the root of this, the intellectual conformity that goes on in colleges and universities. So you have accreditation and a, mon a monopoly that's protected by the federal government, and then you have the tenure system, another monopoly system. And so, lo and behold, when you walk into a college campus, you better toe the line or you're not welcome there. 
And I don't mean just you can't walk on campus and start screaming racist epithets. You can't be anything other than sort of like a left liberal of a particular stripe. Even I've, I've had friends who are just too radical left wing, and they've gotten run off campus too. It's, uh, it's terrible in terms of speech, in terms of free speech. Now, there's two doctrines. There's the doctrine of legal speech, or the legal doctrine of speech, and then there's the, the culture of free speech. So legally, only public universities are technically maybe violating free speech. I think, in fact, they are in many ways. But, you know, if it's a private institution, you can do whatever you want. I'm all for, you know, Baptist colleges teaching creationism as, as long as they want to, as long as they don't force other people to do it. The problem is that the culture at places that claim to be committed to free inquiry are not at all. That's the issue. It's a cultural issue to me. It's about norms. Are there departments that have this problem more than others? Brad, your evolutionary biology is fairly recent. Well, I mean, it's more recent than history. Um, or, or more ancient than history, depending upon how you look at it. But, um, so I wanted to add one thing to your taxonomy uh, of dysfunction, which is the hidden thing that synchronizes all the colleges. So you know, you go on that tour where you look at all the places you might go to school and you think, ooh, which one's right for me? Well, they're all the same and there's a reason. Um, the reason is that the departments are hiring people who are publishing in the same journals and those journals are required in order to get hired and be promoted and all of that and they synchronize these schools of thought. So there's this sort of monolithic belief system that you cannot violate and stay viable as an academic. So, you know, I don't know, at some level, I'm being a little bit cynical here, but at some level you should pick the campus that seems the loveliest because the thing you're going to get is a generic product which will be rebadged depending upon where you are, but its value will be about the same. Isn't it, isn't it remarkable? I mean, I'm sure you get this all the time. Constantly, parents with prospective students come up to me, oh, what, what do you think of the col this college or that college? And I say to them, they're all the same. Like, the, the faculty and the students are all the same. At the sort of top 200 in the, U, in the U.S. news ranking, those, the elite schools, in terms of the culture, the belief systems, what neighborhoods they're from, I'm not kidding you, which prep schools they went to, it's basically all the same. Harvard, Pomona, Occidental, Columbia, they're all the same. Am I right? Well, with one exception, okay. I, I'm, I'm betting maybe you'll agree. No, well, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, for the worse. Yeah, for the worse. Um, but there's also the University of Chicago thing, and frankly, I don't know why there's only one, right? University of Chicago has gone the other direction, at least with respect to campus culture. I think it's just the president there, isn't it's it? Just, it's, I think. Maybe. but he's, he's made some nice statements about freedom of speech, but otherwise it's the same, isn't it? Uh, well, my guess is the content is still synchronized, yeah. but the freedom to speak and to know that the administration is going to back you, that's valuable. At least so. they say they'll back you. Well, at least they're we'll a, see when they're tested. Let's put it this way. Maybe they're being cynical, but they'll be in a bind if you speak, it's a problem, and they don't back you because that's their brand. So at some level, I would say if you're thinking about sending somebody to college, maybe think about University of I think, Chicago. I think so far, am I right, there's only two university presidents who have made flat-out declarations in support of freedom of speech and intellectual diversity at Chicago and I think Ohio State. At least he did at one point. That should tell you something. You know how many colleges and universities there are in this country? Two have come out in the last few years saying we are committed to intellectual diversity. Two. So here's a question. Maybe you know the answer. I can't figure out why, given the number of people who are looking at the situation and thinking that doesn't look good, why there is not a competition to get ahead in the, um, I think freedom of speech is the wrong term, but the freedom of expression culture. Why are 
a small number of colleges, maybe a small minority of them, but at least a handful, why are they not competing for the market of people who don't want to get caught up in this nonsense? I can't, I can't understand why there isn't uh, it, you know, 10 colleges doing it. I mean, I would say it's because it's a, it's a citadel or a cathedral. You know? I mean, I think they're committed to particular points of view, particular worldviews, particular ideologies, and so, and they can, this is the one place in American society where, and I'm not, this is not anti-leftism, I mean, it's just, it's just a fact that the left controls, okay, so it is political, and they've said this, I mean, I've had dozens and dozens of colleagues say explicitly to me, you know, we need, this is the last place we control in this society, we're going to hold on to it forever. So freedom of speech is just a cover, you may have heard this, for fascism, for Nazism, for people like Brett Weinstein. Right. So, and Thaddeus Russell. Can I, can I push back a little bit? Sure. Um, I actually don't know where you... No, you okay. need to stop talking. Right. <laughs> well played. Um, so, uh, it ain't the left. Okay, it's a particular quadrant. Oh, here we go. Okay, so this is the fight we're going to have. So oh, is this right? This is where we I'll stop it. publicly have been indirectly arguing I'll, with, I'll with each other. I'll stop it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, can, who did you vote for in the primaries in 2016, Brett Weinstein? I voted for Bernie Sanders. Even worse, I voted for him in the general. Okay? No, I know that makes me evil, right? Because Trump is somehow now my responsibility. Um, but I did... Before the results of the election were in, when we all thought Clinton was going to win, I wrote a document in which I outlined how there was not a single choice you could make, including the one I made, that left you without the need to apologize to some group of people. So um, anyway, I did it. It caused a problem, but uh, there were no good options, so I picked the bad one that I liked best. All right, so are, you, are universities giving us people who are as the popular conservative media might tell you that are snowflakes, that are uh, unwilling to engage with ideas that they uh, don't agree with. And of course, to the extent that you can find that on the left, you can certainly find it on the right as well. Uh, but is it, is it, one, is the problem as bad as we think it is? Worse. Worse, all right, that's one argument. And to the extent that it is, that it is a real problem, is, are, are universities truly to blame for it? How many of you have seen videos of Brett being hounded at Evergreen by <clears throat> students there? Okay, so, so Evergreen is an extreme example. I went to Antioch College, which is basically Evergreen East. It's the other super crazy hippie SJW run by anarchists, everybody's trans, this and that, pronouns matter more than anything else kind of college. So I know that place and I knew those students. I knew those people very well. I said this yesterday. I don't know, you're from Evergreen, so maybe you aren't fully aware of this, but that's unusual, right? I mean, they exist. There are those students in almost every campus. I've seen them, but they're a tiny, tiny minority. And the problem with the media's coverage of this, and it pisses me off, is that they focus almost exclusively on today's crazy 19-year-old, right, who said this ridiculous thing about gender or pronouns or language being violence or whatever it is, who ran the professor off campus. They're there. They're loud. They're scary. I don't like them. I would, have, I would have expelled every single one of those students who did that to him that day. And I would have fired the president too, and among other things. So we are completely in sync on that. To me, as I said yesterday, the problem is not them, it's fear, it's cowardice, in particular among the faculty. The problem, I think, is that we tend to spend our time focused on these children, 
you know, post-adolescent students, as, and we tend to be very concerned about what they think and how their feelings are being hurt, and then we have to rearrange the entire curriculum and maybe the entire higher education system around their feelings, and that's really what's been going on, by the way, while the faculty, who are the smartest people in this country, the most educated people in this country, just stand or sit on their hands because they're terrified of being called a racist or a sexist or mean or insensitive or you name it. I've been in faculty meetings where the most ridiculous things have been presented to the faculty by either other faculty or SJW students or somebody, and a whole room full of social scientists and English professors and historians don't say a word about the most ridiculous, idiotic claims that are made. That's what makes me crazy, and that's the real problem. They're so afraid of breaking out of this box that they themselves have created, breaking the walls of this cathedral that they finally conquered, that they won't say a thing. That's the real problem. So that is a problem. I saw the same thing. And I agree with you. It's not a large percentage of people, even at Evergreen. You know, it was a couple hundred people driving that thing. And it's a college of 4,000 plus students. So first of all, there's an absolute epidemic of cowardice. And it is concentrated amongst college and university faculty. There's something about the process that turns you into a faculty member that selects for cowards. And it's not helping. No, I, I mean, I hate saying that because a lot of my friends are academics. But, oh, my God, the amount of stuff that I saw happen in front of people who said nothing and wouldn't even look you in the eye as it was being said in front of them was staggering. But when I say that the problem is worse, I don't mean that it's more people. I mean that that process, that, that cowardice combined with these industrial strength stigma generating tools that thing is a recipe for disaster because nobody knows how to stand up against it and because they don't know how to stand up against it, it has way more power than it should have proportionally based on the number of people who believe it. So when I say worse, I don't mean it's bigger. I mean it's more powerful than you think. And I will say, since this is about free speech, Free speech is the wrong rubric to understand this. It's not a problem of college campuses inherently. That's where we're seeing it first, but that's not what this is really about. And the connection to postmodernism that many, including myself, have drawn is not as straightforward as it seems. Many of the people who are behaving in what I would call a postmodern fashion have no idea what postmodernism oh, is. Good. I'm so glad. All right. I've, to hear I've you successfully say picked a fight. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, I okay. think you picked an agreement. Okay, yeah, good. No, yeah. I just, the most, for me, the problem is that the most critics of postmodernism that I've been hearing lately clearly don't know what postmodernism is, but... Um, Can you give us some names? Um, I've never heard of them. No, um, well, no, this is kind of the boogeyman, right? If you've paid attention to this stuff at all lately in the last year or so, in our world, which now is his brother called the intellectual dark web, which I think is actually a great moniker. I just don't want to be a part of it, but anyway... Um, you may have heard certain people yelling about postmodernism being the root of all the evils, especially on college campuses. Okay, so the central claim in postmodernist thought, Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, and I think he agrees with me, is simply relativism, right? That there is no such thing, or at least there's, there's never been a truth that's been, that's been proven, right? And even a lot of scientists will say, yes, we've never proven a truth. There's nothing in the history of science that is still exactly the same as truth according to us. Now... The thing that's going on on college campuses, though, is claims like this. Brett Weinstein, you're a white man. That means this, this, and this. And I'm a black woman, this or that. And that means this, this, and this. And that's the way it always will be and always has been. That's an essentialist claim. That's exactly what postmodernists were trying to overturn, right? Claims about human beings based in nature. 
natural claims about our behaviors, our desires, our orientations, whatever it is. So what's going on on college campuses, the SJW discourse, is actually a total repudiation, in my view, of the idea of relativism and postmodernism generally. So when people start talking about, like Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, and others talk about postmodernism being the root of the evil on college campuses and the, the reason that these 19-year-olds are screaming these things about your, your words are injuring me is ridiculous. This is an identity politics that's based in essentialism that actually is fundamentally conservative. It's using the categories of the old, right? Race was invented by slave owners to justify slavery. So if you keep reinscribing that, keep talking about race as if it's real and eternal and forever and this is who I am, then all you're doing is the slave master's work. And it's virtually, the, it is exactly the opposite of what the people who inspired me, postmodernist philosophers, have argued. All right, I'm gonna push back a little bit on that. Feel as, free. as you would imagine I would. You are correct that many of the claims that are being made by the SJW horde are essentialist rather than postmodern. But this still derives from postmodernism because the idea that they have picked up on, largely through uh, faculty and critical theory and the like, is that because all of these claims are relative and not synonymous with any sort of truth, that what there is instead of truth is power. And the argument that you must shut up and I can talk based on the color of my skin or my gender or something like this is a power argument. And the fact that it plays on people's fear of being stigmatized makes it a very powerful power argument. So the real point is that when somebody has embraced this postmodern view and taken it very seriously as implying that arguments are really to be rated based on their effectiveness, not based on their accuracy, then they end up deploying essentialist arguments when those work and not deploying them when they don't. So you are hearing those essentialist arguments, but it's not a deep belief in essentialism. It's essentialism one minute and relativism the next minute, and there is something about that that does derive from a, I think, cruddy reading of the core element of postmodernism. And although I am by no stretch a postmodernist, I will say there is one core insight at the bottom of it, which is true. And so it is important not to just simply throw out the baby with the bathwater here. There's the core concept that everything we know comes through a perceptual apparatus that is not objective, and that causes us a problem. That is true. And then things descend from there. Uh, before we go to, to questions from you guys, I want to talk about one more thing. Babies, bathwater, academic culture, and um, the intellectual dark web, which you are, not, you are not a part of and you are not a part of. Is that right? Whoever, define, whoever gets to define Depends it. Depends on who you ask. Okay. If fair. you ask the New York Times, he's a part of it, but I'm not, okay. which is great for me because I don't like either one. Okay. I mean, the New York Times or the intellectual dark you web. You like Brett, yeah. though. I love Brett. Okay, great. The, the IDW, I'm mixed on. Okay, he's so, one of the good ones, so, in my view. Yeah. Thaddeus, if, if what you're saying is, is correct, that... The, the range of acceptable debate within uh, many departments is very narrow and that you are, you, it's harder, much harder to get tenure if you exist without this narrow range. Mm -hmm. That, you know, uh, forces, throws a whole bunch of ideas out and casts them out of the academy in, broadly. And it essentially puts them in the same category with ideas that probably ought to be debated and discredited that because they're not in the, in the academy, aren't. And uh, 
what does that do to this, this state of ideas that there's this broad range of things that we ought to engage with either to uh, validate in some way or reject this big pool of ideas that simply academia just isn't dealing with? Well, when you add digital communications technology to this, it's actually a fantastic thing, turns out, right? When, when one group or institution holds a monopoly on ideas or the exchange of ideas for centuries, and then all of a sudden a technology is invented that allows everybody to talk about anything at any time, guess what happens, right? All that pent-up frustration gets unleashed in all these places like the Joe Rogan podcast and the Thaddeus Russell Unregistered podcast and thousands of other podcasts and then YouTube videos and, oh, my God, we've lost control, haven't we? And that's what's happening. And it's great. And so really now is a time for celebration. I spent most of my career, as I mentioned yesterday, being angry and frustrated and despondent. I'm not anymore because I see a vast opening. That's why thousands and thousands of people you've never heard of before are making a living talking about big ideas on YouTube and podcasts now, right? This is a wonderful moment. And, it's, and the best part, it's just beginning. I fear, actually, not with any sympathy, but I fear for the history of higher education. Catholic University, an established, respectable university, just announced that it will be laying off tenured faculty, right? And this is happening all across the country for various reasons. The crisis for them is real and happening. Enrollments are declining and declining and declining for lots of reasons. And so now it's just stop, I've been saying just stop worrying about them and just do our own thing because now is the time, and I have found a massive market for the biggest ideas there are. So can I, can I get in yeah. on that? Um, there is a, a fact about what's happened to colleges and universities, and it, it occurs to me uh, at this moment that there's an analogy to be drawn between what happened there and what happened at Kodak. So Kodak is one of these famous, now taught in business schools, failures where Kodak did not, it talked itself out of fearing digital. It thought that film was going to last. And I think they came up with the first digital camera, too. Right, but somehow they didn't, they didn't see what was coming at them, even if they had seen it early. And they, they basically failed uh, because they didn't, they didn't get the message. This, is the, this phenomenon that you're talking about is the same thing. There's a way in which colleges and universities used to do a lot of dispensing of information. Well, guess what? It's now free. It's on Wikipedia, and it's just as good as what you're going to get at the informational level. So colleges and universities had to recognize that they were facing digital, and they had to do something that digital couldn't do. And there is a something, but they didn't spot it. There is a thing that can happen in a good class which is personal and doesn't scale. Yeah. You can do it with 25 people, but you can't do it with 1,000, and you can't do it broadcasting over the Internet. And so the thing I miss about Evergreen was that it actually took this seriously um, in the most radical way, where we had professors taught one class, they taught it full-time, students took one class, they took it full-time, and it could go on for a full year. So you knew everybody in that room if you were any good at your job, and that meant you could, you could watch as people listen to you and you could understand what they were hearing and you could tailor the lesson so that they would get it and you could take a point that might take three weeks to reach and you could expand it out. Anyway, all of that is lost in the digital format. Well, it's not lost, it's facilitated, right? So last weekend, Renegade University had a weekend-long course in New Orleans, I just came from there. There were 25 people who came from all over the country uh, and they were there for one reason and one reason only, really, to talk about ideas. You know? I mean, yes, they came there to talk to me, but I talk about ideas. If you listen to my podcast, that's what I do. I'm a professor of history. We talked about American history and philosophy and Plato and all the rest of it for two days, and that was it. It was in a room full of all-star students 
talking to each other face to face. And that only happened because of the internet, right? I couldn't have made that happen if not for digital technology. I put out the call, people come. It's kind of amazing. So that's cool. You're going to reinvent the brick and mortar university um, from it, a digital start. It's done. We're, we're doing it. That was the third. That was the third of our courses. And so we do a mix. We do, I'm not saying, I mean, there's all sorts of models you could adopt, but our model is a mix of online interactive because now these, these teleconferencing software platforms are so good. We use Zoom. It's amazing. I mean, it's like talking to people in a room. I see everybody's face and I talk to them in real time. And we also do in-person classes like I did this last weekend. So I, th I feel like that's what people want and that's what they're not getting. As you said, well, they're not even getting it at universities, right? I mean, people don't talk, at the big universities, they don't talk to professors. They talk to, at best to their TA, their graduate student TA. Most of the time they're isolated, alienated, right, within that, within that system. Man, everybody who comes to the classes I'm teaching now at RU, they're just like, I, I'm so thankful that I have a place, a free space to talk about any idea I want to. And that's what, that's what we can do. That was Brett Weinstein and Thaddeus Russell speaking with me at the Voice and Exit Conference in Austin, Texas in May. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 